You are listening to ReachMD, XM233, the channel for medical professionals. In the United States, vaginal fistulas resulting from labor are unheard of. Unfortunately, the consequences for the new mother are also unimaginable. Even more disturbing, these catastrophic injuries are commonplace in Africa. Today we will be discussing the mechanism of injury and epidemiology of these horrible childbirth injuries as they occur to mothers in Africa. Welcome to the Clinician's Roundtable. I'm your host, Dr. Michael Benson, a clinical assistant professor in the Department of Obstetrics and Gynecology at Northwestern University in Chicago. With me today is Dr. Lewis Wall, the world's only board-certified obstetrician-gynecologist who also holds a PhD in anthropology. Dr. Wall received his medical degree from the University of Kansas. He also holds a doctorate in social anthropology from Oxford University. He is a professor of obstetrics and gynecology at the Washington University School of Medicine. He serves as director of the Division of Urogynecology and Reconstructive Pelvic Surgery. He also is a professor of anthropology in the College of Arts and Sciences. Welcome to the Clinician's Roundtable here on ReachMD, Dr. Wall. Can you give us some background about the uh, demographics of those who are likely to get vesicle vaginal fistulas? Well, the women who are likely to get vesicovaginal fistulas really can be any woman who develops obstructed labor. Typically, those women are more likely to be young teenagers in their first pregnancy uh, from rural parts of the country who've not had access to uh, obstetric care. But if you look at large numbers of patients, there are a fairly significant number of older women who in their fourth or fifth pregnancies develop obstructed labor, either because they have a bigger fetus, they've developed osteomalacia or have had changes in uh, the pelvis or the spine, or they get a malposition, but it's really the process of obstructed labor and inadequate access to emergency obstetric services. So teens are somewhat more likely? Particularly in parts of the world where marriage occurs early. In many parts of Africa, Girls are married uh, even before puberty occurs or just after puberty. And one of the things about human female pelvic development is girls tend to reach their adult height earlier than they reach the full growth of pelvic capacity. So at the time of menarche, when they're biologically capable of bearing children, uh, their pelvis is still relatively small, and it's not going to reach its adult dimensions for another four or five years. So they are set up in that sense for cephalopelvic disproportion. What about uh, birth weight and gender? Do those have any role to play? Well, actually they do. We looked at nearly 900 patients in Nigeria who had fistulas, and of the fetuses whose sex was determinable, 75% were male. Uh, And that's probably explained by the fact that males tend to have higher birth weights than females. Now, when you look at uh, the newborn outcome of the babies that uh, result in labors with these vesicle vaginal fistulas, uh, what happens to these babies? You mentioned that uh, there's a high infant mortality rate or a high newborn mortality rate, but what can you tell us about uh, these obstructed labor pregnancies, the outcomes for the uh, newborns? The one thing you have to remember is this is not an obstructed labor that lasts three hours and then somebody intervenes. These are people in rural areas with poor transportation, so when labor becomes obstructed, It may be three or four or five days before anything is done. In those circumstances, as awful as that predicament is for the woman in labor that long, the fetus is even more vulnerable, and the fetal mortality in obstructed labor is usually between 90 and 95%. It's 
almost a death sentence in those social circumstances. What about the survivors? What about the 5 to 10% that actually are lucky enough to survive? Uh, well, a significant number of them are going to succumb in the first few days or weeks of life because they're often born in pretty precarious health. If you look at the reproductive outcome of women who get obstructed labor and have a fistula, it's really very dismal. Of the uh, nearly 900 women that we looked at from Jos in Nigeria, if you added all their pregnancies together, only 30% of their children had survived. Uh, what about uh, comorbidities? What other kinds of long-term injuries do you see in the vesicle vaginal po uh, fistula population? Well, people always focus on the hole in the bladder because in a lot of ways that's the most obvious and most dramatic. But the process of obstructed labor creates a field injury in the in the pelvis. Now, with regard to these uh, vesicle vaginal uh, fistulas, do they ever resolve? Do the tissues ever come back together without treatment? None of the fistulas that occur in these settings will heal spontaneously. Uh, if somebody comes in with a relatively small fistula that's occurred right after delivery, uh, a small percentage of those will heal if you put a urinary catheter into the bladder, drain it completely, and provide good care for the surrounding tissues. But the vast majority of them require uh, surgical intervention in order to be healed. What about uh, other complications over time? Are these women more prone to infection or early death from this phys the physical complications of vesicle vaginal fistula? It's really hard to sort out the physical from the psychosocial complications. Because what happens is you have a you have a young woman who's reeking of urine and perhaps stool, who can never get dry. Twenty four hours a day, the urine is dripping from this this injury. They get salt incrustations on the vulva. They get skin excoriation. They're not fit to live in the family compound, so they usually get shunted away to a shack outside the family house. Sometimes the family says, "Gee, we can't." put up with this anymore, go away. Uh, Fifty or percent or more of these women are divorced or separated from their husbands because they don't have any social skills or means of, of earning a livelihood because they're mainly young, illiterate girls from rural areas. They fall into this trap of poverty, social ostracism, stigmatization, and they become prone to not only depressive symptoms from social isolation, but poverty and malnutrition, and that combined with all of the other physical injuries they may have really has a tremendously negative impact on their health and life expectancy. So if they have other children, do they have to leave the children behind, or do the children go with them when they're thrown out of the village, or how does that usually work? Well, there's not a lot of good data on that, and because so many of them are in their first pregnancies, a lot of them don't have other children. In most cases, the children are regarded as a an important resource for the family, so they're likely to stay behind when the mother is is ostracized, and and that can be even worse social blow to those women. So I imagine uh, if they have this vesicle vaginal fistula and they're not uh, attractive to their husbands, divorce is, uh, a is it fair to say it's a relatively informal process in sub-Saharan Africa? Probably don't need a judge? In Muslim areas, divorce is pretty easy, but in many parts of Africa, a man can have more than one wife, and so taking another wife is, 
is easy. It'll vary a lot according to local circumstances, and some of them are just permanently separated, even though the legal bonds may not be broken. Uh, the social bonds certainly are. I see. What about uh, the rate of depression and suicide? I would say that there's no good scientific data on that, but it doesn't take much to figure out that if you were a young woman whose life prospects had apparently been wiped out by this kind of injury, particularly at the time which really would have been the culminating moment of your transition from youth to womanhood, the birth of your first child, that's when you really become a an adult member of many of these societies, that the blow to your self-esteem is going to be uh, enormous. And then when you discover that this awful condition you're in is permanent and incurable, it's it's difficult. My friend, Professor Abo Hassan Abo, who's a professor of gynecology at the University of Khartoum in the Sudan, told me a story once about a group of Somali women with fistulas who chained themselves together and all jumped off the dock in Mogadishu in a mass suicide. How are these uh, fistulas treated when they can be treated? Well, when they can be treated, I mentioned a small number will will heal from from bladder drainage. They require surgery. And the surgery is straightforward in concept. You have to mobilize the tissues around the the fistula, close the fistula in multiple layers, and then drain the bladder for a prolonged period of time till till it heals. Uh, the problem is that there aren't that many people with the skills to do it, and there are less people who have the interest in doing it because these are the most indigent of the indigent world's poor, and there is no financial incentive to do fistula surgery. When you talk about uh, mobilization, when you have a five or six or eight centimeter hole between the vagina and the bladder, and the rest of the tissue is denuded next to it, what are you going to mobilize? Well, it requires ingenuity. The people who with the most experience in, in fistula repairs are not mobilizing just uh, a few millimeters around the fistula. They're basically mobilizing the entire bladder and closing it. Uh, and if you mobilize all the way out behind the pubic symphysis and all the way out to the pelvic sidewalls and use some ingenuity, you can often free up enough tissue to close the hole. Now, if that's successful, the woman may be left with a very small bladder indeed, and there are a small percentage of patients who have had so much tissue damage that their fistulas are basically irreparable. In sub-Saharan Africa, would you ever consider uh, urinary diversion procedures? Well, that's a controversial area. The the short answer to it is yes, urinary diversion can be uh, a consideration, but it's confounded by lots of infrastructure issues and cultural problems. If you were to do a continent urinary diversion uh, or, or diversion, say, like an ileostomy on a woman who lives in a part of Africa where she can't get stoma bags to put over the ileal diversion, then really all you've done is move the fistula from her pelvis up to her abdomen. She's going to have the same problem. And and leaking urine out the side of your body may be even more stigmatizing in that society than than having the fistula. If you do an operation to reimplant the ureters into the rectum, you first have to make sure she doesn't have a rectovaginal fistula as well, because then you've also made her much worse. But you have to worry about the long-term risk of rectal cancer and the problem of fluid and electrolyte imbalances. 
And if people don't have access to laboratory follow-up and appropriate metabolic supervision, you're going to dramatically shorten their lifespan. So there's an awful lot of discussion and thought that has to go on with these patients before you consider that kind of, of intervention so you don't actually end up doing them more harm than good in spite of your beneficent intentions. I want to thank Dr. Lewis Wall, a professor of obstetrics and gynecology at the Washington University School of Medicine in St. Louis. Today we have discussed the epidemiology and pathophysiology of vesicle vaginal fistulas occurring during childbirth in Africa. I'm your host, Dr. Michael Benson. You have been listening to the Clinician's Roundtable on ReachMD, XM233, the channel for medical professionals. For comments and questions about this program, send your email to xm at reachmd.com. Thank you for listening.